Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 10th, we are studying Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. St. Matthew has told us how Jesus has been born into the world, but not many people know about it yet. You might think that what is needed is an epiphany, and you'd be right. The evangelist tells us of the Magi, the wise men, these surprising worshipers of the child who has been born King of the Jews. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Pastor Speckard, as we get started here, give us just a, an introduction to the, the text, the context that we have before us today. Yeah, so there's really a lot to... Um a lot to get into this morning, and I think that's what's so what's so interesting about this text is that it's something, as a concept or as an image, uh, we're all very, very familiar with. I mean, it's kind of been uh, wrapped up into our uh, remembrance of the nativity, and, and, you know, Christian children know from a pretty young age the story of the, uh, the Magi or the wise men or the kings, depending on what they've heard. Um, but uh, I imagine that to actually get into Matthew chapter 2 and, and look at these uh, verses, uh, there's a lot here that maybe we, uh, we don't remember or, or we've remembered wrongly, and it's just a fascinating opportunity for us to uh, go back to a, a portion of God's Word that seems so familiar uh, and maybe uh, get back to what, what it actually says, for one thing, and then also to uh, spend a little bit of time thinking about uh, why the popular understanding of these verses has uh, seemingly deviated from uh, from what God's Word actually uh, reveals. Um, and one of the things I think we're going to see is that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing at all, uh, the way that the uh, Christian Church uh, and its traditions and, and kind of its... Um, uh, you might call them legends that have developed over time, and also the popular culture, uh, the way they've made use of these verses um, demonstrate, I think, some really positive impulses. And we have a chance to maybe rein those in a little, uh, anchor them back in what God's Word actually says, and, and as you said, Pastor Apple, uh, reflect upon how this truly is uh, the epiphany uh, that the world needed, that uh, the birth of Christ uh, was something for all people. And uh, we see here God uh, revealing that very directly, uh, very intimately uh, to you know, these Gentiles who suddenly are aware of the salvation that is, uh, uh, has been made available to them in and through Jesus. So really, uh, really a lot to talk about today. Sure, yeah. I mean, epiphany, I use that word tongue-in-cheek, but it, it, it's an important word, and that's this text is the gospel reading for what we call the Feast of the Epiphany, which of course then becomes a full season in our church here. So before we dig particularly into these words, Pastor Specker, just give us an overview. Well, what does the word epiphany mean? Why this text for the epiphany? And maybe just give us at least an introduction as to how this does relate to 
the nativity of our Lord Christmas, like you said, sometimes these get conflated in our minds and in the images we see. How, how do we relate? Just give us an introduction to some of that. Yeah, I mean, that's really the, the lens through which you have to, um, I think you have to take this text, you know, in the Church. This has been uh, both in the historic lectionary and then for um, any of us using the three-year lectionary, uh, we're in year A, and so this, you know, you would have heard this gospel uh, either on Monday or if you celebrated Epiphany uh, the past weekend. Um, you know, the, the season is all about uh, light coming into the darkness, right? The, the, the Greek in Epiphany literally means to sort of to light up or to enlighten. And, and the way I teach my confirmands, uh, you know, you can just picture, uh, like in the old cartoons, uh, a light bulb coming on above somebody's head. Um, the difference with Epiphany, and maybe that image, is that uh, the thought isn't our own, the light isn't our own, but rather this is God's light uh, bursting into the world in the person of his Son. Uh, and, and, you know, this is something that John's Gospel uh, details for us in a little bit more uh, direct language, how Jesus is the light of the world and the light is the life of men. Um, that's what we're celebrating this season in the Church here, uh, this recognition that, uh, you know, even as we're, we're taking down our Christmas decorations and uh, no longer do you hear Christmas carols on the radio, uh, the light of Christ was not a uh, one-evening or 12-day um, sort of event, but rather the light of Christ is here to stay. And thanks be to God that it is. Uh, and, you know, I think that this this particular account, where you have uh, quite literally a light in the darkness that is the, uh, the miraculous star leading the Magi from the east uh, to uh, the Holy Land where Jesus was, um, you can hardly ask for a more vivid and dynamic picture uh, of what Epiphany is, where God sends his light uh, and enlightens uh, for people who are otherwise totally lost in the darkness, uh, enlightens for them you know, the, the full truth, uh, the full majesty, the full glory uh, of the way he's going to reveal and give uh, the righteousness we so desperately need. Um, and we'll just see that. I mean, we'll see in the way that the Magi interact uh, with the star, uh, and then especially the, the, the poignant scene at the end of this, this passage where they, uh, they have an opportunity to, uh, to worship Jesus. Uh, you just see the, uh, you know, the light by which God led them giving way to the light uh, by which all people are led, right? So the light of the star giving way to the light of Christ, and the applications for this and things that we can dwell upon, uh, you know, we could spend many mornings uh, thinking about these things. Yeah, yeah. One, more, one more thought as a way of introduction before we look at the text itself. The, the Magi are Gentiles, and we've seen already in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew very much has a focus on the way that Jesus comes as a fulfillment of the Old Testament, the promises given to God's people Israel. And even within this text, we're going to see that Jesus is called the king of the Jews. So how do, how do Gentiles fit into what Matthew is doing? They just seem a bit out of place from what we've seen so far. Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's something that, you know, even, even just one chapter into Matthew, uh, as you noted, it's clear he's going to uh, spend a lot of energy uh, demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and, and of course you saw that with the genealogy and the, the introduction and uh, even with the birth account, there's all of this 
all of this emphasis on the Old Testament promises, prophecies, uh, and pictures uh, reaching their culmination in Jesus. He is the one. And of course, uh, you know, before very long you'll get to, to Matthew chapter 3 and our Lord's baptism, uh, which of course many of us will be uh, celebrating this upcoming weekend. Um, you know, the, this huge focus on the fact that, that the Son of God, uh, this Jesus born of Mary, is the appointed, uh, the Messiah, the Christ. And it is kind of odd, then, if you consider that emphasis of Matthew, to see this uh, portion of his gospel devoted to the Magi, uh, because the Magi aren't a part of God's people of the Old Testament. Uh, they couldn't be further from it. They're, uh, they're foreign, uh, call them wise men, uh, of a foreign court. Um, and we'll talk maybe a little bit about, about their, their identity um, what we know of it, uh, but they certainly uh, were not uh, people who would have been looking for the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Uh, and yet Matthew spends so much time describing the way that God led them to Christ. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with the way the different Gospels, you know, each Gospel ha has its own emphasis, we might expect this in Luke, uh, you know, Luke being uh, sort of the companion Gospel to, to Paul, of the Apostle, and, you know, Paul's Gentile ministry, I mean, this is a perfect text for uh, uh, maybe uh, getting, getting Gentiles excited about what God has done for them, uh, Gentiles that is non-Jews. But here it is in Matthew, and I think that one of the things that that goes to show, one of the things that that reminds us, uh, is that our Lord's um, being the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, but also being the savior of the world, uh, these are not separate things. Uh, call them two sides to the same coin if you want, but even that might be drawing too sharp a distinction because this is, this is who the Messiah was always going to be. If you go back to uh, God's covenant with Abraham or, or, or um, obviously even further back into Genesis chapter 3, uh, this is what God was always going to do. And the whole uh, reason he chose his people, the whole reason he had uh, a covenant with Israel, was to produce not just for the Israelites, but for all men and women and children, uh, a Savior. And that's who Jesus is. And I think that, um, you know, for the, the 21st century Christian, as we reflect upon all of these things, it's really helpful to see that here in Matthew, see this uh, this account that has so much to do with the Gentile ministry, and understand that that ministry is not uh, fundamentally or essentially different uh, than uh, sort of the, the aspect of our Lord's ministry that is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but rather these things go hand in hand. Yeah, it, it fits in perfectly, and Matthew's going to show us that throughout, and you, you even get a bit of a, a bookend on the other side, the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have the, the promise that's given there at the very end that you're going to go and make disciples of all nations. And so you see that here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as well. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text. We've got Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There's our text for today, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So, Pastor Speckard, we've got some familiar characters here in the, in the account that Matthew gives us. Let's start with uh, Herod the king. What do we know about Herod the king that's, that's told about us here? Yeah, so this is something that uh, I think even pastors and theologians and, uh, you know, a lot of us who study God's Word, uh, this is something a little hard to keep straight. You have to be a, a historian, maybe, of, uh, of the uh, uh, ancient world to, to totally be comfortable with this. But, you know, Herod is this um, kind of this uh, appointed ruler of uh, this portion of the Roman Empire, um, obviously, he's not the Roman emperor himself, but he's somebody that the Romans have, have given to, uh, to rule in this place. Um, he would have been raised a Jew, uh, but his uh, lineage is, is that of, of Edom. He's an Edomite. Um, and, you know, that, that's important because you, you do sense here in Matthew um, kind of a, a division uh, between Herod and uh, his people, right? He was their king. That's what he was called. Uh, he would have been known as such. Uh, but there's not—you um, don't get a sense that they were all that, uh, all that uh, chummy with one another. Um, and that's probably because what we know of Herod, uh, not only from the scriptures but uh, from from some other sources like Josephus, uh, is that he was a really, um, really vicious ruler. Um, not not a bad ruler in terms of what he accomplished. He actually uh, apparently did many great things uh, in this part of the empire uh, and, and for the Jewish people themselves in terms of um, kind of updating their infrastructure and um, uh, perhaps improving the overall quality of life, you could say. But he did so with an iron fist. And you don't have to get very much further into Matthew before you see an example of the uh, the type of thing he would do. Uh, but nevertheless, when we're introduced to him here, he is uh, the king, and it goes to figure that when you have foreign uh, magi, um, they weren't really emissaries, it's not as though they had been sent, but uh, people coming from a foreign land, uh, he is the one they would have thought, um, you know, in order to, to figure out, well, hey, where should we go? We've seen this star, uh, the magi would have, uh, would have been thinking, um, let's ask the person in charge, and that was... That was very much Herod, um, and important also, just as we're, as we're getting into it here at the start of Matthew, uh, not to confuse him with uh, the Herod we'll meet later on uh, in, the, um, uh, in the Gospel, where you have you know, Herod participating in the uh, Passion of our Lord. Um, this Herod, the one we have in Matthew 2, 
uh, is about to die. He'll die um, shortly after these events, uh, and then he's succeeded, and there's kind of a line of succession there uh, until you get to the Herod we see later. And then there's another Herod <laughs> who you, you have uh, dealing with the early church in the book of Acts. So there's a lot to keep straight, um, but for our, for our purposes, uh, we need to understand that this is Herod the king, um, and he's, he's not somebody to be trifled with uh, by any stretch. The fact that Matthew labels him Herod the king is something we want to keep in mind as we, we encounter the Magi, and then they come asking, who's the, who's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We, we're invited, I think, to, to compare these two kings. And, um, I think we can spend a good amount of time talking about that. Before we do, though, the, the other really familiar character in the account, then, is the, the wise men, or we've been calling them the Magi. Sometimes in, in popular culture, you'll hear them called the kings. There's often three of them when you see them pictured. Pastor Speckard, help us sort some of this out. Yeah, isn't that a fascinating thing, that that who among us doesn't know, uh, you know, we three kings or, or something like that? Uh, and yet when you get to the text itself, we're not talking about kings. Um, uh, you know, without being a, a, an expert in the historicity of this account, um, you don't want to speculate too much, but you can see that that was clearly a uh, a later development, this idea that these would have been kings. And, and I think that, you know, if you were at an Epiphany service, you would have heard the, um, uh, the Old Testament reading that, that is attached to Matthew chapter 2, uh, is Isaiah chapter 60, where you do have described by the prophet uh, kings coming to worship uh, the appointed one of God. Um, and so you can kind of see how that idea would have been infused into this text. But for the text itself, uh, there's nothing that indicates that they were kings. Uh, they weren't. Uh, there's nothing that says there were three of them, for that matter. Uh, but that is a number that has been, um, uh, you know, they gave three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and so it, it's possible that there were just three of them. Um, and then maybe most interesting of all, I think we're so familiar with these magi, uh, these wise men, uh, because they have become kind of a, a central part of our depiction of the nativity, uh, that if you go to a Christmas program, it's very likely you'll see uh, little kids dressed up as uh, wise men or kings. Uh, in the nativity set in my own home, uh, there are uh, uh, wise men depicted there. Um, you know, and we'll have a chance to talk about this, but I would just say at the, at the outset, it's really, really easy to, you know, look at Matthew 2 and say, well, clearly, we've gotten that wrong and chalk it up to um, whatever, historical sloppiness or, or theological sloppiness. But um, I do think there's something very positive in the uh, conflation uh, that we might ask ourselves, why have people kind of uh, brought the wise men into the account of our Lord's nativity? Why do we see those things as one event when, when really they weren't, they were separate events? Uh, and I think there's something, too, understanding that, uh, you know, Epiphany, uh, is, we sometimes refer to it as the Gentile Christmas, um, and that when our Lord was born, uh, the shepherds came, and of course the shepherds would have been Jews, um, but this wasn't just for the Jews, and that it really doesn't, uh, it doesn't do us a lot of good to think of our Lord's birth uh, as only the fulfillment of the Old Testament, because as we discussed earlier, uh, the whole point of the Old Testament, the whole point of uh, the existence of the Jewish people as God's chosen, was to bring about uh, this 
this savior that wise men from other kingdoms could come and worship, um, could come and, and uh, bow down before. Uh, and of course, the Old Testament prophecies and, and promises indicate as much as we've already said. So, um, you know, for our for our study this morning, uh, for the sake of accuracy, we do well to acknowledge, you know, this wasn't happening on, on what we call Christmas Eve. Uh, this would have happened later. Uh, but not the worst thing in the world to think about uh, the visit of the Magi uh, sort of in the same breath as we think about uh, uh, Christmas Eve, if that makes sense. It does. It does. We, we are right to see these accounts together, not in terms of, you know, right. we want to be accurate in terms of the way that we think about it, the timeline. That's important because these are real historical events that happened in time. And so we want to place them on the timeline as correctly as we can. But as we think about them theologically, and to consider them together is, is good and right. I, I also appreciate the way you brought out um, Isaiah chapter 60 in terms of the the, the kings coming to see to, to see the Savior, so that the Magi themselves may not have been kings as, as we know what a king is, but they, they stand in for kings in a sense. They, they're part of the same class of people, the, the elite, the upper echelon, who, of all things, as we'll see, come to worship this, this newborn baby king, this child who, who's just sitting there on his mother's lap. These elite, they come to worship him. So, yeah. so with that in mind, what, what can we say about, I mean, we keep calling them the magi. That's, a, that's an odd word. We don't really use that word elsewhere in English. It's also called the wise men. What, what can we say about who these men might have been? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, um, uh, it, it might be a case of, of the less said the better in the sense that, that Matthew um, really doesn't give us too much to go on. And I think that we can assume uh, that if he had wanted to, he could have. Uh, and the fact that he, he leaves it pretty pretty vague as to the specific identity of these magi, uh, that probably tells us something about where our focus should be. You know, it's not so much, it's not so much who the magi are, it's who they came to worship. Um, having said that, we, you know, we can uh, put a few of the, the pieces together. You know, the, um, you see magi, uh, the, the Greek word used in the Septuagint, um, the, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, you see it in, in um, uh, Daniel, and it kind of refers to the, uh, you know, the wise men, the, the learned advisors uh, that exist in king's courts in Babylon and Persia. Um, you know, and I think that we can just sort of uh, we can just sort of picture with any king, with any ruler, you have your, uh, you have your cabinet, you have your, um, you know, the experts at your side who are going to advise you um, on important matters, and uh, presumably uh, these magi were just that uh, for for some uh, eastern uh, foreign king. Um, you know, I, I was reading this week. I didn't realize the extent of the. Uh, sort of the tradition surrounding these men that, you know, that they've been given names. I think many of us have heard uh, Melchior and, and Casper and Balthazar, um, which, of course, isn't from Matthew. It's just it's just tradition. And then the tradition is that one's from Persia, one's from India, one's from Arabia. Uh, and you can kind of see um, this global impulse that the tradition is trying to encapsulate. Um, those are fun things to think about, but for our purposes in Matthew, um, you know, Matthew doesn't give us that. He doesn't say a whole lot at all. Uh, they're just they're just wise men. Uh, they've 
they've come from afar. Uh, we can assume that they belong to a, uh, a king's court somewhere. Um, but the fact that Matthew doesn't tell us uh, much more about their origin is probably a good indicator that uh, we can just take it as read that um, they're Gentiles. We wouldn't expect to see them here, and yet here they are because, well, God has led them. Uh, but that really you know, gives us the, the thrust of the whole, the whole account. One, one more thought briefly on this side of the break before we, we leave the Magi. You mentioned they're Gentiles. We wouldn't expect to see them here. God led them here. How is it that these Gentiles from the East came looking for the king of the Jews? Yeah, that, isn't that a great question, too? Uh, I mean, we know that the, the, the language says we, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him, is what the, uh, is what the Magi said. Um, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, you will, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to work out exactly what, what they would have been seeing, what this star uh, could have been. Was it a, a natural phenomenon or was it a, a, an entirely miraculous event? Did other people see this star? Uh, and in any case, how did they understand this star to be something having to do with, uh, with the Jews? It's not like the Jews were uh, a people of, of global renown, really. Um, one, one of the theories that I remember being taught, and uh, you know, I think it sort of rings true, is that uh, if the Magi came from Persia, uh, and of course Persia had conquered Babylon, and it's possible that you know, they would have been familiar with the Jewish people through the, um, uh, the Jews' interaction with the Babylonians, and, and who knows, maybe through people like Daniel, uh, the Jews who were taken captive in Babylon, uh, maybe they were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, it's entirely possible. Uh, but Matthew doesn't really say that, and I think the overwhelming thrust of this, this account um, is, is really that the, the, the Magi were led. Um, one way or another, uh, the star was a sign for them uh, to drop everything and follow. And, you know, Who's to say what that actually looked like in the in the sort of the practical matter of their day-to-day life? But the the leader here is God, um, and we see that we see that so vividly in Matthew in these opening chapters. I mean, God is is very directly interacting with people through uh, through His angels um, or through the angel, and then and then we see this star, and it's a good reminder that it's not like it's not like the Magi deduced you know, the reality of, of uh, God's Son taking on flesh. Uh, this wasn't some, some manifestation of their wisdom that they figured it out and came to Bethlehem. Uh, there's really no evidence of that. Uh, quite the opposite. You know, uh, Dr. Gibbs in his, in his Concordia commentary makes a really strong argument that, um, if anything, Matthew is dismissive of their wisdom and trying to put, you know, trying to shine all the light upon God's um, uh, God's active leading of these these people who otherwise never would have never would have had a chance to worship Jesus. So, yeah, the the wisdom of the wise men is not their own, but it is the wisdom in, in following Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Chapel serves those who serve the Lord to be receivers of the word and to remember where our true help is found. Hear God's word read, preached, confessed, and sung in the broadcast of Daily Chapel from the LCMS International Center in St. Louis weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The broadcast of Chapel is underwritten by LCMS International Mission and Ministry to the Armed Forces. this time of year, the Christmas season has ended, but it still echoes. Lovely, joyful reminders can still be heard. Yes, the season of Epiphany begins in the Christian Church, but you can hear both that new season and those echoes of Christmas in gracious music on the next Sing for Joy. Join us. Sundays at noon on KFUO. I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You can help us continue to get that message out around the globe while there's still time. One way is to become a church or organization of the week. For a gift of just $595, your church will receive 35 30-second announcements during the week of your choice, identifying your church as well as upcoming events and happenings. And your pastor or a representative from your church, they may record those announcements or we can produce them ourselves either way. In addition, your pastor or representative will have the opportunity to be on one of KFUO's programs. It's a wonderful way to expand your mission outreach and to help KFUO Radio to do the same. For further information, call me, Mark, at 314-996-1520 or mark.hawkinson at kfuo.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Friday, January 10th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Dan Speckert of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Pastor Speckert, prior to the break, we've been talking about Herod the King, the Magi, the wise men. These Magi, they've seen the star rise, and they come looking for the King of the Jews. What's so significant about that phrase, King of the Jews? Yeah, well, you know, if you're familiar with uh, uh, with the ministry of our Lord, and, and particularly, uh, I think every Christian is going to think immediately of uh, the inscription on the <clears throat> on the on the cross uh, when he would go on to be crucified. Um, interesting here that you have the Magi uh, seeking the one who would be crucified uh, when he is only uh, a year old or, or however old he would have been. Um, very interesting also that dynamic uh, between Jesus and Herod. And I think that um, in Matthew chapter 2, you sort of see these these competing kings. And without wanting to give away what you'll be studying later this week, um, there's sort of this tension between Herod, who was appointed by the Romans to be king of the Jews um, and and rules with such, uh, such authority and, and such viciousness, uh, and then, you know, this baby... Uh, who is, um, you know, hardly hardly royal in any earthly uh, sense. You wouldn't look at him and think king. And yet that's the one the Magi came to worship. Um, and in fact, they, they you know, receive um, counsel from Herod. And, you know, once Herod had been himself uh, counseled as to where the, the Messiah is supposed to have been born, um, you know, they kind of blow right past him 
in order to go find this true king. And you can imagine, and of course we'll see, how that, uh, uh, how that sort of felt to the supposed king of the Jews that was Herod and, and how he would respond to these events. But, um, you know, this is a, um, that's important language uh, here in early in Matthew. This is who Jesus came to be. And with all of the humility and all of the um, sort of the lowly estate, uh, that his ministry, um, you know, takes place within, uh, make no mistake, uh, he is king not only of the Jews, but of the cosmos. And that is why the Magi came. Uh, and, and, you know, there's really no, uh, there's really no other way to put it. Uh, Jesus is king, um, as we'll see. This is going to be an important theme for Matthew throughout his gospel. We've already seen it in the genealogy with the fact that Jesus is connected to David as king. And it's going to become important in the preaching of both John and Jesus later. Both of them are going to come preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus will send his disciples out to preach that same thing. We're going to see at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority has been given to Jesus. So uh, we're invited here already to ponder what does it mean for Jesus to be king? And, and here, as you've said, that contrast is going to be set up between what Jesus does as king and how Herod behaves as king. And we don't see everything that that Herod has right here. We'll see more in the text we've got on Monday. But here we do see a bit of how Herod acts as king. So, I mean, you kind of have to, you just have to picture this in your minds, and it, it's not hard to imagine this, right? Herod doesn't know anything about this other king. He's got some foreign visitors who, who want to know who's the king. I mean, he's, uh, you're looking at him, right? <laughs> so, so what's, what's Herod's reaction to all this, Pastor Speckard? Well, it's, it's, uh, uh, one of concern, you know, and I think you have that uh, uh, that language when when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, you can understand why he would be Trump troubled. That you have, uh, he might not have been unfamiliar with uh, people from foreign lands coming to uh, pay tribute to him, uh, but this would have been sort of a different thing that they uh, they came to him looking for another, and uh, you know you get a glimpse into the type of king that Herod was. You know, when he is troubled, all the people are troubled. Uh, what is what is he going to do? Um, you know, you, the people, you can just picture, uh, and we, you know, from the distance of time, maybe don't appreciate uh, the, uh, the tragedy of it, the fear these people would have lived under, uh, that somebody has upset Herod, and now we are going to suffer. And, you know, again, you'll talk about this as you work through Matthew quite a bit, but that becomes uh, not an insignificant dynamic for the followers of Jesus, uh, that Jesus does not, uh, does not pull any punches with respect to who he is uh, and his authority and his, uh, the coming of his kingdom. Uh, but that proclamation um, has a way of upsetting the rulers and authorities uh, here in the valley, uh, the valley of the shadow of death, and for the followers of Jesus, his boldness in, in proclaiming who he truly is uh, would sometimes mean, um, you know, damage and, and, uh, and hurt being inflicted upon, uh, upon the people he loved. And of course, nobody, nobody suffered more than Jesus himself. Um, but it, it is interesting. I mean, he's still just a an infant or a, a little child here in Matthew chapter 2, and already that tension exists uh, between the king of heaven 
uh, and the kings with a lowercase k uh, of this world. Uh, it brings to mind the John's revelation, particularly in chapter 12, where you've got the, the dragon who's making war against a child who's about to be born. And I, I think this, this text and the one we'll see on Monday, too, are both just startling parallels to that, that already as a child, you've got the devil and you've got the, the rulers of this world making war against the king of heaven. Even when he seems entirely helpless, right. they right. recognize. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's exactly right. And, and that's um, such a powerful reminder. You know, Jesus is who he is. And, you know, it's kind of a, maybe a pithy, uh, a pithy saying, but I think many of us have heard before, um, every king was once a baby, uh, only one king became a baby. Uh, and of course, that's Jesus the Christ. Um, all of this, all of this tension, all of this battle, all of the strife against him that he was about to endure, um, you know, so important to remember that, that Jesus doesn't need this. Uh, he was king uh, before he was born of Mary. Um, you know, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things are created. Uh, and it is a a, a really beautiful. Uh, reminder of the nature of our Lord's humiliation, uh, that he is coming to uh, suffer, um, suffer violence, as we, as we read elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, and it's, it's, not something, um, it's not something he did for himself. Uh, our Lord didn't need these things, these troubles, uh, but it's, it's out of love that our Lord is enduring uh, the, uh, the violence and the uh, the, the darts of um, not only Satan, but also the rulers, uh, the rulers of this world. So Herod is troubled that the wise men have come looking for the king of the Jews and are not looking for him, but he's, he's very shrewd, very crafty. And so he's already formulating a plan, it seems, to do something about this imposed in, imposter king. And so he goes to his own wise men, his own advisors, a sort of the chief priests and scribes, ask them where the Christ is to be born, and, and they come back with an answer from the Scriptures. It's, it's a bit ironic, I think, that, that nobody there in Jerusalem has been looking for the birth of this King of the Jews. But what, what, do they, what do they bring back to Herod in their answer from the Scriptures? Yeah, well, and, and credit to the, uh, uh, credit to the uh, chief priests and the scribes for, for at least getting this right. Uh, they remember, remember from, uh, from Micah, uh, chapter 5, uh, the prophecy that, that from Bethlehem uh, you would have the, uh, the ruler uh, who would come to, and then Matthew gives us actually, he, he attaches a little bit from Second Samuel chapter 5, uh, who would shepherd the people of Israel. But anyway, you know, clearly this is referring to the, uh, you know, the servant with a capital S, the true Messiah, the Christ, uh, the one uh, for whom David was paving the way, um, you know the the true king, um, and and that's sort of a I mean a study all all its own to consider that from Bethlehem uh, this king comes, and it sort of underscores the the lowliness uh, in which our Lord uh, burst onto the scene. Um, but uh, again, it doesn't change who he who he is, and uh, again, good for the chief priests and the scribes they got they got this part right. Right, they did. They did. So, so Herod, here's the answer. Bethlehem, he, he's still formulating that plan in the back of his mind. He, he summons the wise men secretly, 
he ascertains from them what time the stars appeared at, at and he sends them on to Bethlehem saying, I, I want to worship him too. What's, what's going on with Herod here? Yeah, he's lying. And, and that, uh, um, you know, particularly in today's political climate, it, it's really easy to, you know, to say all politicians are liars and, and uh, I don't know, get carried away in that way of thinking. But this is a, um, a really great example of what um, uh, the sort of pitfalls and traps uh, that the rulers of this world fall into, and, and in, inevitably fall into. Um, you know, the, the, uh, this upcoming weekend, we're going we're gonna to hear again from Isaiah uh, the first servant song, um, if you're, if you're uh, celebrating the baptism of our Lord. And it gives us cause to think about all of the other servants of God uh, in the Scriptures and throughout the world, all of them imperfect, um, all of them do this type of thing. They are concerned not for others but for themselves, and so they, uh, they claw and they cheat and they lie and they steal. They do whatever they have to do to remain on top. And then what a powerful sort of juxtaposition. You see Herod's um, murderous self-interest on full display here um, against the absolute selflessness uh, of the Son of God who has uh, made himself to be so weak, so vulnerable, uh, you know, a little baby uh, would be the one who ultimately suffers uh, at the hands of people like Herod, if not him directly, um, because that's what, that's what God's love is and does. That's what uh, true authority does. Uh, it looks after uh, not uh, itself, but rather those under um, the ones to whom uh, the one in authority has been given to care for. And, you know, that's not what Herod is doing. He's just trying to get out ahead of this potential rival um, and, and is willing to lie and to, uh, to murder in order to do so. Um, but what a comparison then to Jesus, who uh, is truth incarnate and suffers death before he would um, care for himself over others. So the the wise men are sent on their way. It seems, at least for a time, they've been duped by Herod. They, they don't seem to, to sense any malice in what he's told them. They go on their way, and then the star shows up again to lead them right to the house where Jesus was. Pastor Specker, we didn't talk about this, I don't think, too much earlier, and I don't want to get too far afield on it because there's tons of speculation that's out there, but, but what, are, what should we picture when it comes to this star that's there? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's something that we are we're sort of um, at a historical disadvantage because not only um, not only are these events so you know so distant uh, to us in the past, but also you know these things are happening in a world where stargazing, so to speak, uh, would have been a much more common and practical thing. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that Matthew doesn't doesn't feel the need to go into great detail in describing what happened. He simply says, uh, you know, that the, the star came to rest over the place where the child was. Um, you, at least I get the sense as you read this that he and his readers, um, as miraculous an event as this obviously was, they would have had a sense of, of what that looked like. And, you know, for us, you know, we hardly can see the stars. Uh, you know, I'm close enough to St. Louis that we get quite a bit of light pollution here. You, you know, you have to get out a little bit to gaze at the stars, and that's nothing compared to uh, what gazing at the stars would have looked like 
prior to the uh, the advent of electricity. Um, I think it's a hard image for us to to wrap our minds around. Um, but whatever it looked like, whatever it was, I think we have to say it was effective. Uh, you know, the the wise men, the magi, were led to precisely where they needed to be, and whatever that light in the darkness was, it enlightened Christ. Um, you know, and so I do think some of the more popular depictions of the star over the um, well, you'll see it so often over the the stable. And again, this, these events aren't happening Christmas Eve. This isn't um, uh, Jesus wasn't still lying in the manger when they came. Um, but wherever he was, maybe he was in that same house, uh, just not in in the stable any longer, but in an actual room. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to picture this this bright star uh, above it, uh, pointing the Magi right to where they needed to be. So they see the star, and, and what's their reaction? Well, <laughs> they're, they, they're um, overwhelmed with joy. You know, Matthew, uh, the language rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's a little bit redundant, but it underscores just how happy they are. And what's, what's important is that um, their joy, their happiness, it's not in the star itself. And I think this is a really important image for pastors and parents and teachers and anybody who has the privilege of sort of being the star uh, in the lives of others, that is, being the, um, the tool through which God enlightens the gospel of Christ uh, in the minds and the hearts of other people. Um, you know, the wise men follow this star, but they don't worship the star, do they? They, they go into the house, and the star, um, after it's gotten them to Jesus, you hear no more uh, you really don't hear anything else about it. Um, what a great reminder, uh, you know, Pastor Apple, you and I uh, in particular as pastors, um, you know, shine the light on God's Son and be happy then to get out of the way. Because what the wise men needed is not the light you were shining. They need the light that is Jesus. And in the same way with our children and with our people, uh, with students, if you're a teacher, or with your neighbors, if uh, you're just a Christian living out your vocation in the world, um, you know, be the star. And I don't just mean, uh, I don't just mean, you know, kind of shine light wherever you go, but be the star with sort of the humble understanding that you are a tool uh, as somebody to whom God has revealed his love. Uh, you are now a tool through which God reveals his love to others. And be content then to let others love simply Jesus. Um, you know, whatever they think about you, good, ill, or otherwise, um, is entirely secondary to the relationship that they will have with the Son of God. Um, and that, that, to me, is one of the most important points uh, of this whole passage. Um, the star gets out of the way, and then you have Christ. Yeah. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we would shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, all pointing to Christ. Uh, that, that's, that's key. And so the Magi see Christ. They see the child, and they worship him. And, and we shouldn't lose the, the image here. The, the image of, of worshiping is that they're, they're falling down on their faces. These, these advisors to kings, these highly important men are falling down on their faces in front of a, a child. And they bring him 
these gifts and they, these this is another one of those very famous parts of the account these gifts gold frankincense and myrrh talk a little bit about the the worship that they offer him these gifts is there what's the significance of, of the three gifts um, yeah. take us into that pastor Speckard. yeah and there's so much to be said you know i think that the wise men um, as we discussed before, they would have known what it looks like to worship. They would have known who you worship and when you worship and how you worship. Uh, you mentioned that you know the, this language is very much language of of prostration. So they're you know they're down on their knees, nose to the ground. Um, the wise men understand that world, what that looks like. So to see them doing it before this child is an almost overwhelmingly um, uh, poignant scene. Uh, that they knew, and, and it's not really given to us to understand fully how they knew, uh, but that they knew that the true king of the Jews was there. And, you know, the, you know, the language of Matthew, they see the child with Mary, his mother, and so you can just picture Mary holding uh, this, this however old Jesus was, baby or infant. Um, they saw in him the, uh, the Savior, the ruler, uh, the prince, the king uh, of all things, and responded accordingly. Um, it's, it's just, it's beyond, it's beyond amazing. And then the gifts they give him is kind of a funny thing. Um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a lot has been made of these specific gifts. Uh, again, in Isaiah 60, you have gold and frankincense uh, identified explicitly as gifts that, um, you know, the, the kings of other nations would bring uh, to to the Savior, um, you know, don't want maybe to go too far in trying to uh, allegorize the significance of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, other than to say these are these are kingly gifts. And so it's funny on the one hand to see them being offered to a baby. Uh, what is a baby going to do with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Um, and then on the other hand, given who Jesus truly is, uh, whereas gold seems like something too good for a baby, gold is not nearly good enough for the Son of God. And so the wise men, uh, you know, they, they can't really, um, what are they going to do? What could they possibly give that would be appropriate? Um, and that's the thing. There's nothing. There's nothing they could give um, other than themselves, and that's what worship is. Uh, it is to, uh, to worship, to prostrate, is to give yourself, to put yourself low, uh, understanding, fearing, loving, and trusting uh, that the one you worship is above you, uh, and the one who is above you is for you. Um, and that's the picture we have here. And I know we're, we're I'm sure we're running short on time, but I, I think that just a, uh, for so many of us who were born and raised in the church, and I was, I was baptized as a baby, and I've never, I've never been anything other than uh, than a Christian, um, I think maybe the the power of this is is a little bit lost on me. Um, whereas if you talk to people who came to the church uh, later in life, um, who have this experience of um, humbling themselves before the majesty of God's Son, but God's Son in the the simple, insignificant, seemingly ways, seemingly insignificant ways that that he gives himself to us, um, you know, the font and the altar, the water and the bread and the wine, to bow down before these things, the power of that um, 
is something that I think uh, adult converts really, um, to hear them talk of it, is something special. And uh, you kind of begin to see why this particular passage has lived so vividly in the imagination and the life of the Church, because I think that it, it characterizes or latches onto something that so many people who have come to the faith as adults have felt uh, and experienced being led by God uh, to God um, and then receiving from God in spite of all of their own inability to um, to offer anything worthy, uh, receiving from God nothing but love. Um, really powerful, powerful image there. With one one minute, real quick, Pastor Specker, just wrap things up for us this morning. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, so... Uh, you could just you could just go on and on trying to uh, trying to capture uh, why these verses are significant. And you mentioned before, I mean, this this is a historical account. Uh, Matthew included this um, uh, first and foremost because it happened, and it's significant that it happened. Um, and you know, the um, uh, the text tells us what we need to know about the Magi and about Herod and about. Uh, their interaction with the Son of God. Um, I guess I would just tell you know the Christians that are listening, um, it's good that you know that this didn't happen on Christmas Eve. It's good to get all of that right. But spend some time thinking about why so many people conflate the two events, and, and we should all just, we should love the fact that true Christmas and Gentile Christmas, Christmas and Epiphany, um, do go hand in hand. Uh, that God has led us to Christ. Pastor Dan Speckard is the pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Speckard, thank you for your time today. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.